Welcome to the Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, we heard from an expert on the history of labor unions, chatted about comics, and learned about modern-day brown shirts. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for October 26, 2018. Jeremy Lucero spoke with labor historian and author Joe Allen. Allen traced the decline of the labor movement to deals made with UPS and Chrysler, discusses the efforts to make Amazon a union shop, and why Jimmy Hoffa made such terrible deals. Labor Express airs every Sunday evening at 8 p.m. One of the most important labor stories in recent years, uh, the real, really the betrayal by James Hoff and the leadership of the Teamsters of the their members at UPS with this recent contract, and we'll talk more about what we mean by that soon, uh, is, is something that we really have to discuss. And so I've been lucky enough to get uh, Joe Allen, author of The Package King, a rank-and-file history of United Parcel Service, a former UPS employee and member of the Teamsters as well. I'll let you explain, Joe, what, what's happened in this last couple weeks. Well, I think, you know, if you pull back the lens to this whole year, like you were talking about, Jerry, is that this is really going to go down in the history books as a year where the strike was rediscovered by American workers. And even more importantly, it was rediscovered by teachers in what have been called the red states, the pro-Trump states. And in many cases, those teachers or the families of those teachers voted for Trump themselves. And yet what we saw starting in West Virginia and then spreading to Oklahoma and then to Arizona and then to many other places across the country is a, is a rediscovery of not just simply the strike uh, weapon, which is important in itself, but that many of these strikes were very political strikes right. where the issues were not just their immediate wages and working conditions, and of course they, they all said that was important, but also issues of the funding of the schools, the care of the children. So this is, this is a year where not only we rediscovered the strike, but American workers have taken up quite militant demands and quite political demands, which is not something that, you know, most people in this country or most people around the world, how they view American workers. And so when, uh, you know, you come to a thing like a company like UPS, which is uh, the largest private sector unionized employer in the country, holding a position that it was is somewhat akin to what General Motors used to hold in the United States when it was uh, the largest uh, uh, unionized employer, that obviously a struggle and a fight at a company like that has the potential to carry the struggles that have begun by the teachers and then by the hotel workers and by others to carry it to an even, an even, an even higher level. Right. And the fact that this was sabotaged by uh, the Hoffa leadership of the Teamsters Union is really a black mark against against uh, not just simply Hoffa and uh, his supporters, but is really a gift to, uh, you know, in this era of the Janus Supreme Court decision, a real gift to anti-union forces in this country, which are quite strong uh, in corporate America, but are quite strong politically all across the United States. I mean, can you imagine a situation where somebody's trying to organize a union, particularly if you're trying to organize a union into the Teamsters, where, you know, the employer just has to put out a a leaflet saying, well, here's these out-of-touch bureaucrats who make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, and all your dues money does is go to them, and when you vote for something you don't want, they tell you you can't have it. Um, Well, you know, you can't think of a better scenario for uh, anti-union forces. I would also just add to that, of course, that one of the big issues, of course, in future organizing in this country, because we do have a labor movement, despite the, the strikes that have taken place this year, that is that is in a really dire condition. Uh, 
uh, both public sector unions and, you know, have lost a huge Supreme Court decision earlier this year. But private sector unions, for the most part, most of the economy has become deunionized. And the burgeoning logistics section of the economy, I mean, typified by Amazon, who's now you know, one of the largest private sector employers in the country, along with companies like FedEx and a whole uh, slew of much smaller local and regional companies, you know, are, are major non-union employers and should be organized into unions like the Teamsters. And the fact that, you know, a Teamster negotiated contract, which Hoffa is now going to impose on a membership that voted it down, only starts part-timers at $13 an hour, while Jeff Bezos, right. uh, you know, uh, at least granted $15 an hour without a union to at least some section of his his workforce is 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 frankly embarrassing. I mean, right, I, right. I I I just don't know how you call it any other call it any describe it any other way. And I want to come back to that particular point too again because it's so essential to talk about how destructive this could be to mm-hmm. organized labor. Let me let's go back just a second just to go through the the kind of the what exactly happened. So there was the uh, the vote was taking place over a course of at least a couple I think a couple months over the summer, right, or at least August. Or no, um, uh, September, mm-hmm. and then the vote count was held just a few weeks ago. And if I understand correctly, there's there's kind of two parts of the contract, right? Um, one was voted down by the members by 55%, the other by 65%. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what happened there? Well, uh, like I, w- I said, mentioned earlier, is that UPS is the largest private sector unionized employer in the country, and that's mostly and overwhelmingly uh, the Teamsters. There are some other unions that represent sections of UPS employees, like you know the pilots are in a different uh, different union, the Independent Pilots Association, and the mechanics are sometimes in the machinists. And there's also a large section of the mechanics who are also represented by a national local of the Teamsters. Uh, but most of the um, most of the workforce is uh, at UPS is in the Teamsters and 200 in the in the in the division that people are most familiar with which is the UPS package division, you know, the people who do home deliveries or deliveries to your office, uh, the, the brown trucks that are pretty ubiquitous on America's streets these days. There's about 260,000 of those workers, both part-timers, package car drivers, feeder drivers, and various categories of combination full-time workers uh, who are covered by the national contract. Um, UPS Freight, which, you, which was formerly known as Overnight, uh, which you know, when uh, which you can easily find out a lot of information about, was one of the most notorious non-union union-busting companies in the country. And back about 15 years ago, you know, 10 years ago, UPS bought it, and it's been rebranded UPS Freight. Uh, uh, in a in a in a deal that was cut between Hoffa and and UPS. Uh, Hoffa agreed to take the uh, UPSers out of the central state's pension fund in exchange uh, for the uh, Teamsters getting card check recognition. So, you know, Hoffa has a long history of making terrible deals uh, at UPS. And UPS freight represents somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people. The numbers fluctuate a little bit because of one seasonal hiring, uh, sometimes because of, you know, a high turnover rate, particularly at UPS freight. Even at UPS Package, you know, there's an annual turnover rate that's almost 90% among part-timers, and part-timers still represent about 60% uh, of the workforce. Uh, There's a national contract that's negotiated every five years uh, in both places. Um, Five years ago, uh, the major uh, issue of contention between the rank and file and the company and UPS was over health care concessions, a new plan called uh, Team Care. 
uh, that the Teamsters would administer. It was sold as a purely administrative change. It wouldn't be a, a benefits change. Well, when people went to use it, uh, they found something different. And, you know, five years ago, the national contract was almost defeated. It passed with a bare majority, and yet the local supplements, which are kind of local contracts that covered the amount of jobs to be created, sometimes health care benefits, sometimes you know uh, uh, um, other things related to job issues that are not covered by the national contract, many of those were voted down and repeatedly voted down mm-hmm. by the rank and file. And Hoffa did a similar thing five years ago, is that after about 10 months, Hoffa imposed the contract on on everyone because you can't implement the national contract until all of the supplements are ratified. So after 10 months of rank and filers voting down all the supplements, he just used his authority to impose the contract on the membership. Now, over the last year, there's been a big you know campaign to get real improvements in the UPS uh, contract. And in fact, you know, a lot of the initial uh, uh, demands put forward by Hoffa and his chief negotiator, uh, Dennis Taylor, were actually pretty good. There was some very tough and clear language on in, you know, introducing new technology that might lead to job loss and, and, many other, and many other things. So people were kind of cautiously optimistic, despite being completely suspicious of, of, of the way the leadership acted five years ago. And uh, what became very clear during the co- course of contract negotiations is that all the initial tough proposals disappeared. Uh, the issues of trying to rectify some of the problems around healthcare from the last contract disappeared, and the union and, and the union itself actually proposed a major concession, creating these things called hybrid drivers, which would uh, deliver ground packages like that are done by full timers right now, and and the other half of the day workers would do something else. Um, it was going to be a new two-tier system. They would right. work weekends without overtime pay. And many people really smelled a rat in this proposal that this was the beginning of breaking up uh, full-time package car driving jobs, which are one of the shrinking islands of high-paid uh, blue-collar industrial jobs uh, in this country. Uh, Hoffa and Taylor tried to sell this as a way of dealing with the burdensome and crushing overtime that many full-time package car drivers have. They were, they're out 10, 12 hours a day uh, and so forth. And most people didn't fall for that ploy so much. Uh, in fact, it kind of blew up in Hoffa and Taylor's face. But there was also a myriad of other concessions or weak language on subcontracting, you know, the fact that part-time pay wasn't going to go up substantially, uh, and, and many other issues. And I think a kind of general anxiety about the continued decline of the union at what is obviously a growing and fabulously profitable company. I mean, I can't even think of a year that UPS ever lost money.
I-94 spoke to Corin Halbert about horror comics then and now. Halbert and the boys discussed the legendary EC Comics Company, the revival of horror by indie presses today, and whether or not comics really can be scary. I-94, London's Books and Literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. And just to kind of get you guys into what we're talking about, um, Corinne's brought some examples from both the old days and the modern days, but um, I actually happen to be a big comic book collector, and I actually bizarrely spent a lot of time writing and researching about this stuff. So let me give you a little potted history of what we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, in my hand, and, and radio folks out there, unfortunately you can't see this, but I'm holding a copy of a book that was published by a company called EC, Entertaining Comics. During the 1950s, uh, Entertaining Comics was, at one point, the biggest comic book company in the land, bigger than uh, National Comics, which published Superman, and bigger than what would become Marvel Comics. At the time, they were called Timely. EC produced a line of comics that were drawn by some of the best artists in the entire planet, frankly, that, that had ever worked in the comics medium. Guys like Wally Wood, uh, Graham Ingalls, Jack Kamen. Uh, these people, Bernie Krigstein, these people were real stylists, and, and they produced a body of work that has influenced everything from television shows and film to novels and popular culture. You probably know them best from a, a book they published called Tales from the Crypt, which was made into, I think, two TV series. Am I correct on that? At least one. No one for sure. At least yeah. one. Um, that published, you know, they, they were publishing um, ironic kind of O. Henry style uh, shock horror comics. Now, you may be wondering why EC Comics isn't a household name. In fact, the, the, public, the only title that still remains from EC Comics in the marketplace is something called Mad Magazine, which was mm. their attempt to uh, survive after what happened to them in 1954. In 1954, they were hauled in front of Congress, uh, claiming that by, a, by a, a congressional committee that had been convinced by a flim-flam artist and a kind of pseudo-scientist um, that comic books were detrimental to the uh, health of American children. Yeah, I looked this up. It was called the Senate Subcommittee of Juvenile Delinquency. That's correct. <laughs> uh, and so this, this and the, the funny thing is people don't remember this actual fact about it. The, the committee at the Congress actually found that the quack who, who pointed this out and was making this up was, was full of it. Uh, they actually absolved the comic book companies of this. But the problem was that the publisher, William Gaines of EC Comics, had gone up and testified before Congress, and he was very nervous, and apparently he'd taken a bunch of, um, I guess, no-dos before going in. So he's sweating, <laughs> he's pale, and he, he uh, gives ludicrous answers. It was almost oh, like an yes. Elon Musk kind of performance in front of, or a, you know, in front of a congressional committee, which you want to do. At one point, he was asked by a congressman, how could you make, and it was, he was holding up a drawing of, of Jack Kamen, a severed head. Uh, how would you make this less gory for kids? And he would say, well, maybe we would cut away and we wouldn't show the blood gushing from the neck. You know, <laughs> answers that were you know, just completely inappropriate to say to Estes Kafoffer, who was the, the senator from, I believe, from Indiana at the time, who was, who was doing this thing. So horror comics, uh, as we really think of them today, and the, the genesis of them, existed in this very small time period, in the 1950s, really about 1949, 1950, to about 1955, when something called the Comics Code Authority came in. But I do want to stress that while when horror comics were in vogue, they were huge. Everybody, and this is, I'm holding up a copy of an Archie comic book, and yes, that's Archie Comics, like Betty and Veronica, okay? They produced a, a whole line of gruesome horror comics as well, showing you that comic book companies know where the bucks are, and they always try to produce that, okay? So even squeaky clean Betty and Veronica would publish uh, Chamber of Chills, Tomb of Terror, Black Cat Mystery, um, all of them, which, which were fairly salacious, I guess, as comics go. 
What came out of this, though, was a body of work um, that is still being plumbed today. These these stories are really actually still being widely reprinted. There's a publication out called uh, Haunted Horror. Craig Yo Books from Fanographics publishes a lot of these comics. The EC books are so classic, they've been reprinted not once, but about 17 times in all kinds of formats from these glorious hardcovers to, uh, in fact, uh, you've got some yeah. of the EC Kitchen Sick reprints, right? Gladstone mm-hmm. reprints. So they, they still hold up. You know, people are still reading this today. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about because even though horror comics, as we typically think of them in America, ended after a brief shining four-year run, they've actually influenced a ton of stuff going on today that's coming onto the market right now. And there's a giant stack of books, including, of course, Hate Baby right here from our author. And I wanted to start off by talking a little bit about this with you. Sure. How influenced were you by these classic horror comics when you started out writing and even thinking about making comics? Uh, very uh, influenced. Um, to be honest, the biggest cartoonist that influenced Hate Baby is Charles Burns. Yep. And he did Black Hole, which is not known as a horror comic, but there's some horror elements to it. Um, the arms in the face, though, I would say that definitely Black Hole. Black Hole's not considered a horror comic? I mean... I think it's just considered a graphic novel, okay. but it definitely has some, some pretty horror intense elements. horror body yeah, horror yeah, stuff going that. on. Yeah, Sugar um, Skull, by the way, is his new newest one. It's the three quarters yeah. one, yeah. yeah if you guys every- are interested in Charles Burns, definitely definitely check it out. Yeah, everything I've read by him is like amazing. And the artwork, that really high contrast black and white, um, really knocked my socks off. And I mean, I've been looking at, you know, the Vault of Horror, Tales from the Crypt, you know, uh, I love all the old uh, illustrators like Basil Wolverton and Graham Engels, Jack Davis. Um, their artwork is unbelievable. So I'm always trying to read these, reread them, um, you know, for inspiration for, for my new work. Uh, first of all, welcome, Corinne. Um, I actually met Corinne at the Wildlife Flea Show at Co-Prosperity Sphere, which Jamie runs. Oh, yes. And um, Love Co-Prosperity Turns Sphere. out I know her husband, but you also work at Quimby's, yep. which is uh, basically, you know, ground zero for this type of work. Are there any um, contemporary... Well, actually, first, before we go into a question, I wanted to read a quote when we were talking about the comics quote from the Children's Book Committee. This came out in 1950. And this is in my handwriting, so I'm going to have to... Uh, um, it, but it said, The violence of the subma- subject matter, the crudity, the cheapness of the paper, the strain on young eyes, mm-hmm. and the spoiling of taste for better literature was the, uh, was the quote that they used. Uh, this was... You know, yeah, it was from uh, Dr. Frederick Wortham, too. Yes, who was that's the, the uh, guy. The quack uh, who, uh, all the good stuff. All the good, <laughs> yes, of course, the stuff you buy comics for. You know? And he had a, a book, uh, and uh, the title is... Seduction of the Innocent. The Seduction of the Innocent. And I, was, I picked up a, a history of uh, horror comics, and they, they had quotes from it. And it's, that's just like the tip of the iceberg. The guy was... Um, it's kind of like, like the satanic panic of the 90s, yeah. just where people were just like, this is what it's about, and your kids are going to worship Satan and kill people, and, and unfortunately that didn't happen. Um, but uh, what I did want to ask you is, what came first, I guess, were you, um, when you were, you started, you told me you started working at Quimby's about three years ago. Mm-hmm. How long have you been interested in horror comics? Um, I have the current hate baby where you, do a wonderful uh, illustrations of the the seven deadly sins. Yep. 
Um, and you have a lot of non-imagery. Yes. And things like that. I was wondering if that comes from a Catholic background. Yes. It does come from Absolutely. a Catholic background. You want to touch on that a little sure. bit? Sure. Um, I grew up in the suburbs of Massachusetts, and uh, for... From the time I was three till about 11, my mother, my brother, and I lived with my grandparents, uh, two of my favorite people ever. And my grandmother was a very devout Catholic, and I went to Catholic school from kindergarten through fifth grade. So, uh, you know, going to church twice a week, um, you know, the imagery uh, and, you know, the ethos basically has been crammed down my throat since a young age. Um, <laughs> Terrifying. So, Terrifying Yeah, imagery. I mean, it's kind of like... It's kind of like a love-hate thing. Like, I don't believe in organized religion, but I, I love the imagery, um, and I've always been very drawn to it. It's kind of psychedelic. Um, you know, the stained glass windows, uh, all the idols. Um, so, yeah, um, definitely uh, gr grew up in an Irish Catholic environment. And has your family seen your work? Yes. Um, <laughs> so um, my mom is very supportive of everything I do, and she loves me very much. Um, she often says, well, you know, why can't you just paint something nice? <laughs> and, you know, I have to, you know, kind of hit home that you can, you can make very dark things or, you know, be into this subject matter, but also be a happy person. And she, she knows that, but I think... Anything is just out of concern for me, um, you know. And um, I just, I, my grandfather, who's 93, I just, I hope to God he never learns how to Google my name. So <laughs> that's all I can say. I hope that never happens because I well, don't want to upset him uh, for no reason, you know. Well, my experience has been, you know, having met you, you're a very nice person. Even in a lot of the guys, men and women that I know, they're in like in extreme metal bands. They're all like goofy, like happy-go-lucky. A lot of them are stoners, you know, and that's that, that's always been like they write these songs, you know, just to, you know, I, I, don't, I can't think of something off the top of my head, but then you meet them and you're like, these guys are nothing like what they sing about. And is it an outlet? Yeah, um, I think... All, any form of creativity, I think, however serious you are about it, whether you're doing it for a career or just for uh, pleasure, um, it's definitely you're letting something out. Um, that at least that's my belief. Hey, Jessica, you want to go grab a bite? I was thinking we could work on my autobiography, Kyle, the war years that I've been talking about. I would love to, Kyle, but I'm actually super tapped out. I had to send some money back to my friends in Joliet. <laughs> it's okay, Jess. I'm loaded. I got a ton of cash from the scrapyard. <laughs> How? Ed's always leaving those metal kegs around the place, and this guy on Halstead gives me two bucks apiece. Um, Kyle, A piece? Uh, you know what? Never mind. Eat the rich. Where do you want to go? I was thinking the hash over at George's is pretty good. No way, Kyle. Anywhere but there. All right, that's fine. How about the Bridgeport Diner? It's good, but I'm banned, remember? The whole right. thing with the card tricks and the furs. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, uh, how about that place on 35th that replaced Remova? Uh, what you call it? Uh, Maury's? Maury's? Uh, What's the matter, Jess? Well... It's just my mom works there. Hold on a sec. You're mine, Bridgeport. How come you ain't not said nothing about it yet? She and I don't really 
get along super well. Ah, jeez. A mother's supposed to be her daughter's best friend. That cannot be true. Or, eh, at least it's not true for me. What, what do you mean? Oh, God, Kyle. Where to begin? Oh, how about one of them audio flashbacks you like? Oh, my God, wow. It's like some of what I say gets into your head. They grow up so fast. It all began when I was a child. People were always saying that my mother and I looked alike, but whereas I have perfect, impeccable diction, my mom, well... Are you going to take all day in there? And as I grew older, it grew worse. I excelled in debate, choir, even ventriloquism. My mom couldn't handle it. Every time I opened my mouth in public, there she was. You know, I was considered for a part with the Supremes, but I was just too real for that scene. No, you weren't. Stop hogging my flashback. You don't know anything. You're just a kid. And it's true. I was just a kid. Until my mother stole my uh, boyfriend. Then apparently I was an accessory. An accessory? Like a purse or something? Sure. The point is, I don't want to see Diane. She stays on her side of Bridgeport. I stay on my side and a little bit of West Undertown because there's some really nice views there. Hold on a second. What did you say her name was? Diane. My, my mom's name is Diane. I used to know a Diane. Real well, in fact. Oh, yeah? You better cue up the flashback noise. So, with 1986... Gung Ho took its place in cinematic legend alongside Police Academy Tree. Everybody was Wang Chunging. I wore more complicated jeans. I was working as a wall washer at the erotic warehouse. I was young, dumb, and full of... Come on, Kyle. What? I was full of ambition. I was looking to work my way up from wall washer to videotape rewinder. Anywho, before I was so rudely interrupted... <clears throat> I was in Grant Park surveying the lunchtime garbage as I want to do when along walked the most beautiful creature that I have ever laid eyes on. And walking that Airedale was a set of legs topped with curly black hair and a catchy grin. You looking for a meal, sailor? Yeah, you knows it, honey. You want half this pizza crust? I was thinking maybe something a little classier. And that's how we ended up at Bennigan's. Kyle, can we skip the romantic montage and get to the point? Nah, it wasn't that romantic. But it was really dirty. Ugh, gross. That summer was the most magical I can recall. I ate people food almost every night. The boss gave me a bigger squeegee, and Diane and I would sit out late and just watch the stars. Oh, what happened? I don't know, Jess. One day, Diane left me a note saying... That she had to go take care of something and wouldn't be back for several months, and I, that was the last I ever seen of her. Well, that's pretty depressing for a variety of reasons. Listen, if you want to go to Maury's, we can go. I guess it's okay. Thanks. Yeah, being sad makes me hungry. Purple stacks, Adam Eve on a raft, Rackham, Mood Juice in 51, and sweep the floor. Hi, Mom. Jessica, what? You living around here? <sighs> Mom, you know I do. You were screaming bloody murder at my apartment last night for 45 minutes. I was. Does that idiot Terry live with you? No, Mom. Anyways, this is Kyle. This is the guy that I've been working with for the radio. Well, you know, I always said you had a face for radio. Diane? Wait. Kyle? Wait, you know this Diane? Oh, yeah. 
real well. Just please, no. Kyle and I used to hang right around when you were born, actually. Come to think of it, you two do look an awful lot alike. We, we do, do not. not. I'm much prettier. Wait, 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 wait. Mom, you knew Kyle in 1986. Listen, babe, I gotta go to the crapper. I think Lenny's passed out in there again. We'll catch up later. This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump tries to soak fear ahead of the midterms. Khashoggi's assassination draws world outrage. Trump tries to legally erase transgender citizens. Mueller continues to take names. And Trump's approval rating rises. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 637, October 18th. Trump said that it certainly looks like Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi is dead. Trump added there would be very severe consequences if the Saudis killed him, but said that it was, quote, a little bit early to draw conclusions about who ordered the killing. The Saudis have offered shifting explanations for what happened to Khashoggi, who was assassinated at the Istanbul embassy. U.S. intelligence agencies are confident that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was involved in his murder. The United States received $100 million from Saudi Arabia the day Mike Pompeo arrived in Rindia ostensibly to discuss Khashoggi's disappearance. That money was for Syrian stabilization efforts. Robert Mueller is expected to issue his report following the midterm elections on whether Trump's 2016 campaign colluded with Russia and if Trump obstructed justice during the probe. It is unclear if Mueller's work will be made public. Trump said the United States would withdraw from a 144-year-old postal treaty that allowed Chinese companies to ship small packages to the United States at a discounted rate. Trump claims the treaty gives countries like China and Singapore an unfair advantage by flooding American markets with cheaper e-commerce packages. Trump also asked each of his cabinet secretaries to cut 5% of their respective budgets. The United States now has a $779 billion budget deficit for 2018, a six-year high and a 17% jump due to the Trump tax cuts. Trump threatened to deploy the military to the United States-Mexico border and remove aid to Central American countries. They don't stop a convoy of Honduran migrants making their way toward the United States. Trump also threatened to, quote, close our southern border. And Mitch McConnell said Republicans would again try to repeal the Affordable Care Act. He called the 2017 effort that failed a disappointment. Day 638, October 19th. Saudi Arabia has acknowledged that post-columnist Jamal Khashoggi is dead, claiming it was a fist fight that led to his death at the consulate in Istanbul. Saudi Arabia has also detained 18 people in connection with that death. The FBI warned about ongoing campaigns by Russia, China, and Iran to interfere with the midterm elections and the 2020 race. The FBI said there is no, quote, evidence of a compromise or disruption of infrastructure that would enable adversaries to prevent voting, change vote counts, or disrupt the vote tally. And Trump praised Representative Greg Gianforti for body slamming a reporter last year. Gianforti pled guilty last year to misdemeanor assault charges in that case. Quote, any guy that can do a body slam, said Trump during a rally, he's my kind of guy. Day 639, October 20th. The Justice Department has charged a Russian national with conspiracy. Elena Kush-Yayanova managed the finances of an operation the Justice Department identified as Project Lakta, which was designed to sow discord in the political system. The operation was funded by Eugenie Viktorich Prizhigin and published misinformation online about immigration, 
gun control, the Confederate flag, and the NFL national anthem protest. Prishigan is known as Putin's chef. He has been indicted in the United States. And Trump continued to attack Mexico, Democrats, and continued to threaten to cut off or reduce aid to Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador due to that migrant caravan heading to the Mexico border. Trump also claimed falsely that the caravan harbored unknown Middle Easterners. Day 640, October 21st. Trump lied and claimed that the Republicans are planning a very major tax cut for the middle class before the midterms. That is impossible as Congress is out of session until after the midterm elections. Trump also said the United States would withdraw from the 1987 Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty because Russia has violated the agreement. That would leave just one test ban and treaty in force between the United States and Russia. According to former Washington Post reporter Carl Bernstein, Trump is preparing to call the midterm elections illegitimate if Democrats take control of the House. Quote, Trump is already talking about how to throw legal challenges into the courts, sow confusion, and declare a victory. And a man cited Donald Trump after he allegedly groped a woman during a Southwest flight. Bruce Alexander was arrested on an abusive sexual contact charge. When he was placed in handcuffs, he told officers that, quote, the President of the United States says it's okay to grab women by their private parts. Day 641, October 22nd. Saudi Arabia's foreign minister denied that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman ordered the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, calling it a rogue operation by individuals who made a mistake. The minister also claimed the agents were not close to the Crown Prince. In fact, several of the 15 men implicated in his killing have close ties to Prince Salman. Trump continued to backpedal on the killing, claiming a major arms deal is at stake. In fact, the Saudis have not pledged major amounts of money to American arms manufacturers. And gay and transsexual rights activists mobilized a fierce campaign that included a protest outside the White House against a proposed Trump rule that would instate a strict definition of gender based on a person's genitalia at birth. That rule, which would affect Title IX, would essentially eradicate federal recognition of the estimated 1.4 million transgender Americans. Trump declared himself a nationalist at a rally in Texas in support of Ted Cruz. Trump added that, quote, a globalist is a person that wants the globe to do well and frankly not caring about the country so much. The term nationalist, of course, is linked with far-right groups and the Nazis. Day 642, October 23rd. Turkish President Recep Erdogan delivered a scathing report of the Khashoggi killing, demanding that the Saudis extradite 15 suspects to Istanbul to face trial. Saying he had evidence that it was a premeditated and planned extrajudicial killing, Turkey also released a video showing the Saudis had attempted to use a body double of Khashoggi to foil local security services. Khashoggi's cut-up remains have apparently been found in the garden of the Saudi Consul General's home in Istanbul. Trump called it, quote, the worst cover-ups in the history of cover-ups, adding to the Saudis, they had a very bad original concept. Trump, however, said he would leave it up to Congress to punish Saudi Arabia. Trump then accused Puerto Rico of using federal hurricane relief funds to pay off the island's debt. This is a lie. Puerto Rico is rebuilding from Hurricane Maria. They already get $82 billion in federal relief to rebuild the island. And the judge reviewing ethics complaints against Brett Kavanaugh once hired Kavanaugh to lobby for him. Timothy Timovich used Kavanaugh to secure a lifetime appointment on the bench while he was a senior staff member for George Bush. Kavanaugh is the subject of more than a dozen harassment complaints. Day 643, October 24th. Bombs were found at Hillary and Bill Clinton's New York home and at Barack Obama's office. Those bombs were mailed and intercepted by the Secret Service. The Secret Service said in a statement the bombs were similar to ones delivered to George Soros' house earlier this week. The motive of the bombers remains unclear. No one has claimed responsibility yet. An ABC poll says that 47% of Americans approve of the job Trump is doing. 
an all-time high. These are the Trump Diaries. Chuck Mertz spoke to author Brendan O'Connor about the GOP's embrace of the alt-right and the emergence of modern-day brown shirts like the Proud Boys. O'Connor details how state media and police have allowed these groups to flourish in the age of Trump. This is Hell airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. Here to welcome us to our new era of open political violence supported by the Republican Party, Brendan O'Connor is a freelance journalist based in New York City who wrote this week's article at The Baffler, Boys to Men, with the GOP stamp of approval, The Proud Boys Go Mainstream. Welcome to This Is Hell, Brendan. Hey, Chuck, how are you? Good. Uh, You can follow Brendan on Twitter at underscore Grendan, that's G-R-E-N-D-A-N. And you're going to find out more about Brendan as well as all his writing at Brendan-O'Connor.com. At the website, uh, The Medium this week, there is a story headlined, A Proud Boy Assaulted Me Because I Am a Muslim. The author writes, last Friday, October 12th, a group of Proud Boys in New York City came under scrutiny after the gang beat several people on the ground in a homophobic assault. After much reflection, I've decided to come out with my story about one of the suspects in the beating to provide context. I want to drive the point home. This was not an isolated incident, but instead falls into a pattern of violence fueled by Islamophobia, racism, and misogyny. I am always torn about reporting on stories like these because... While I believe informing the audience as to the level of violent hate that threatens people of all walks, but especially minorities every day, uh, I, I also don't want to give publicity to the groups that are perpetuating the violence, almost as if we ignore them, they'll go away, and that way they won't get the attention that they deserve or that they want. What do we risk by simply ignoring the Proud Boys? Will simply ignoring them make them go away any faster than they will if we report on them? <laughs> Uh, well, obviously, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't believe that. I wouldn't be doing what doing what I do if if, if I did. But right. I think the reason that I think that it is important to uh, to report on these groups, to apply scrutiny to these groups, is that I think um, you know, I think in 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 darkness they sort of uh, fester and grow, and I think there's a there's a, there's a wrong way to pay attention to what they are up to, and there's a right way, and the right way is to to put it in context, to apply historical perspectives to what they are doing, and to not take what they say um, on their own terms, to really kind of interrogate and unpack and compare what they say to, with what they do. <clears throat> um, and I mean, I think that 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 incident that the the um the medium author the anonymous medium author spoke about um that really is part of that is part of this whole story so that 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 alleged assault took place after an anti sharia rally in new york city that was organized by a man who is now a member of the metropolitan republican club who was at the event on friday night uh, welcoming in the Proud Boys into the uh, halls of the New York State GOP. It, what happened was really amazing, and you write about the incident uh, reported in the medium, writing, quote, On Friday, again, that's October 12th, members of the Proud Boys assaulted leftist protesters outside the New York City's Metropolitan Republican Club, the state GOP's home base in the city and a center of Trumpism in Manhattan, following an appearance by their leader, 
Vice co-founder Gavin McInnes, and there's and here's how the Huffington Post's uh, Christopher Mathias, and you shared this article on Twitter, uh, reported on McInnes's appearance. Uh, Gavin McInnes, the founder of the violent neo-fascist gang The Proud Boys, has a perplexing message for the Republican Party last Friday. McInnes told a crowd inside the Metropolitan Republican Club ballroom, at the very least, people of the right, let us scum in. What's the point in McInnes trying to brand or market himself to the audience of the Metropolitan Republican Club as scum? What, what's the message that he's trying to send there? Is, is it a dog whistle that I just can't hear? What's the message he's sending there? Um, I think that what, what McInnes is alluding to is I think that it's a, a tacit acknowledgement that like what the, what the Proud Boys offer is a willingness to engage in political violence, in street violence, in support of a political program that the institutional conservatives, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's 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 the same political program, but they can't deploy those tactics uh, as openly. Um, and it's not only, you know, I mean, Gavin is pitching pitching himself and the Proud Boys as, you know, part of the right, part of the conservative movement. But the Metropolitan Republican Club, the 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 head, the head of the club himself, in an interview with Gothamist, said as much, said that Gavin McGinnis is part of the right and, and compared him to such luminaries as Tucker Carlson and Ann Coulter. Um, so this is, you know, this is this is part of a a wider a wider shift. And uh, you mentioned how it was reported that one of the people committing violence in the crowd yelled the Proud Boys slogan "F around and find out." What does that mean? Is the brand then the is the Proud Boy brand then we're scum and f around and find out because it sounds like they're overcompensating for something. <laughs> it's um. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, a big part of their, an enormous part of, of their recruiting strategy and their self-branding and their self-promotion is in this kind of, like, appealing to this, like, hyper-masculine um, imposition of oneself on um on others and, and, and of like just dominating people and space around you and the F around and F around and find out, um, is a, you know, as as a way to like hype themselves up and, and, uh, kind of mm, announce their willingness to, uh, you know, to, to find any excuse to beat people up. And as Matthias explains, let the scum in was a baffling thing to say, of course, because uh, McInnes was already in and he was already addressing the crowd. And he had yeah. been invited to speak at the club, a storied and stuffy mainstream conservative institution on Manhattan's Upper East Side. And you point out that over the past, uh, what, or, or actually this is uh, Christian Matthias again, over the past century, presidents, senators, governors, mayors have walked through its doors, including club members Teddy Roosevelt, Richard Nixon, Michael Bloomberg. So it's a very prestigious place. To what extent, then, has the Republican Party invited a violent group to be part of the mainstream Republican Party? I mean, I think that <clears throat> I think that this has been 
I think that this has been a long time coming, and I think that it's just out in the open now. Um, I think that that increasingly the uh, need to maintain the appearance of uh, of separation um, is is eroding, um, and and there are like larger systemic reasons for that, um, or at least in my interpretation. But I, yeah, I, I think. I think this is, uh, I, I mean, I, I said in a tweet the other day, like when when Trump at the rally in Missoula was praising uh, Greg Gianforte for his assault on the Guardian reporter, um, like it's, I, I really feel like it's, it, it's only a matter of time before Trump himself is explicitly endorsing the Proud Boys. And, and, and um, you know, I, I will be... I, I, I won't be shocked when that happens. Yeah, you tweeted, uh, the clock is counting down until Trump explicitly endorses the Proud Boys, and that's scary. How close are we getting to a point where Trump is openly supporting a group dedicated to violence against targeted minorities? Because that sounds a lot like the Nazi brown shirts whose violence helped Hitler rise to power beginning in the 1920s. Is Trump real close to having his own voluntary brown shirts committing violence against those who oppose him? Oh, I mean, he he already does. But it's just a matter of whether or not he uh, knows that he does or cares to cares to acknowledge that that he does. But that's functionally what is what is happening. Uh, Has the president have any Republicans made any statements on the Proud Boys violence last week, either supporting or opposing their tactics? Has there been any acknowledgement from mainstream Republicans or the Republican Party in general about the violence on October 12th? Um, not, not to my knowledge. I mean, the local, the local party through the apparatus of, of the Metropolitan Republican Club, um, has, has doubled down, um, that they, they, uh, last, last, last I checked, they, they still are, uh, fronting like this was a, (laughs) this was a perfectly normal and fine thing to do to invite Gavin McGinnis to reenact the uh, assassination of a socialist politician. Um, And as for like, as, as for officials higher up in the party apparatus, um, I don't, I don't know that any of any of them have come out one way or another. I mean, the, the media apparatus in, in, in Fox news, um, is sort of taking the same line as as the uh, Metropolitan Republican Club that that these are uh, you know that these were people just engaged in their constitutional right to free speech and uh, the leftist mob um, brought this upon themselves. <laughs> spoke with Leslie Johnson, Sarah Dunn, and Ellen Grimes, all professors at Chicago's Big Three Architecture Programs. The group discussed the state of architecture education today, the built environment, and how to teach in the age of Trump. 
Buildings on Air broadcast live the first Saturday of every month at 2 p.m. Without further ado, how are y'all doing? Happy to be here. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for uh, bearing with us, both in the September postponement and uh, a slightly rocky start uh, to this episode. Um, but, but we're here, we're, we, and we've still got plenty of time to chat. Um, maybe you guys can can introduce yourselves. And, and a couple of you are, are Leslie. You've been on the show before. Yes. And uh, Sarah, you've also been on the show before, but in in in, in a long lost episode. And so, you, <laughs> <laughs> so listeners to the podcast feed might notice that the podcast feed begins with episode two of Buildings on Air. Yeah. Because episode one was our pilot episode that went out live over FM radio, but the the recording has has vanished into thin air, so we don't. So it's not on the Seriously. podcast feed. Building yeah. the legend <laughs> of buildings on that's, air. That's that's right, yeah. exactly. Um, so it's it's a mysterious episode. Um, anyway, L- Leslie, why don't you why don't you kick off with the intros? Uh, Leslie Johnson, I'm a architect, designer, um, but a faculty member at the Illinois Institute of Technology. I don't know, Kiefer, when you invited us, you said (laughs) you don't have to represent the entirety of your institution. No. And I think that's maybe something to say is that, you know, I have a perspective, but of course I have faculty members who have different perspectives, so. Totally. And and I I thought about this as getting like a a representative sampling of like people who were sort of teaching in in, <laughs> in different contexts but yeah you guys are here just as awesome studio instructors who happen to be at these places <laughs> uh to be clear so spe- speak freely uh, as freely as you as you want to and i don't uh, know if it, with if that it's proviso relevant. put out there yeah i don't know if it's it's relevant for a conversation about architectural education but yeah my undergraduate degree is also from iit but my graduate degree is from the bartlett school of architecture yeah. at ucl which was like at the time and still a little bit kind of the polar opposite of, of, its, of, of that IIT. experience. So, uh, uh, you know, my thinking about education comes from that too, of course. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, uh, I'm Sarah Dunn, and um, I teach at University of Illinois at Chicago in the School of Architecture. I'm a professor there, and I also um, have a firm with my husband down the street from the studio here called Urban Lab. Yeah, and we do architecture and urban design. Yeah, it still blows my mind that there's an architecture office closer to the studio than mine, because <laughs> I'm like one block away. Yeah, <laughs> You're half a block away. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ellen Grimes. Um, right now, I'm an associate professor at um, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago in the awkwardly named department known as AIADO. <laughs> architecture, interior architecture, and designed objects. Um, we've tried to get rid of that name many times. Yeah. So far, have not succeeded. <laughs> yeah, it's a mouthful. Well, thanks so much for, for being here, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited to have uh, you guys here in particular. Um, s- since I, I've sort of, like, had a lot of time, a chance to talk with you guys, I've been on your reviews, you've been on my reviews, Um I don't think I've ever been on one of your reviews, or you've been on one of my reviews, Sarah. Have you ever but been to a UIC? Review? I've never been to a UIC review, so you have the oh. you have the the virtue of being one of the only people I know at UIC. <laughs> but I know you as a practitioner, um, so I can I can imagine. Um, but yeah, I, I mostly I wanted to talk, especially like I'm a, it's it's kind of selfish. Like a lot of this show is like me like pursuing like this my curiosities like in a public forum, which is a, a, a luxury that um, I, I don't take for granted at all. 
but I, I've sort of been teaching for three or four years now, and so and I'm I'm sort of just generally very curious about. Um, architectural education, because it's one of the things that I do, but also sort of like what the kind of tensions are in this kind of moment that I don't necessarily see because I haven't been doing it for a long time, right? Um, and so that, that's kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to have, have you all on the show is because I'm, I'm, just, I'm just sort of curious, like how you appraise architectural education right now. Like what are, what's different about the students? Like what are the unique challenges of this kind of like this contemporary moment, this contemporary sort of political moment um, that, that, that you face in the studio and that, that, that you're trying to work through even. Um, so, you know, that's kind of become the MO of the show since episode one is I usually set the table with like a really huge unfair question um, <laughs> and, and just have smart people around and, and, and we, kind of, we kind of chew on it. So um, that's the unfair question. And um, yeah, cur- curious what you guys think, you know? Well, I think that there, you know, there, there's a lot of dimensions to that question, yeah. right? There are the, the kind of um, pragmatic administrative issues that actually have a profound effect day to day in the classroom and in curricula. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, there's the ever present question of um, how does education situate itself in relationship to practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I think though, if I have to ask myself, like what are the two big things that have changed? You know, I started architecture school as an old lady in 1990 and um, I had been in other graduate programs before that and had worked, and I found it, you know, curiously a kind of um, antique and conservative situation. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I find it even kind of more sort of distinctive, and um, what I worry about is that the good sort of distinctiveness, the way in which it differs from, let's say, other professional types of education and um, other forms of, you know, um, uh, research and um, sort of speculative practices in academic settings, like some of those things seem at risk of being lost. Yeah. Um, and others seem at risk of just being devalued, mm. you know, not. So like, like in the 90s, I think most academic institutions and IITs are like a really curious example of that uh, had an academic project yeah whether it was theoretical or in the case of IIT the sort of um, curatorship of a of a 1950s curriculum wrestling with a legacy as it were yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and you know UIC had its position as the kind of um, cornerstone of postmodernism in Mm. Chicago, which was historically, I think, a really important one. Um, I don't think you see, um, at least from my perspective, as distinct a kind of positioning, um, particularly with IIT and SIC, Mm. um, in relationship to the sort of larger um, discipline and practice of architecture. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you guys do you guys feel that too? Like you know, I know there's kind of at IIT, like you said, there's this kind of ghost of 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 Mies <laughs> that everyone has to grapple with. So there's sort of the echo echoes of that, and and uh, but yeah, that 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 has some resonance with my my sort of experience. I'm curious what you guys think. I mean, you know, just specifically with IIT, I think 
you know, some schools have uh, uh, the flexibility to really define themselves based on the current faculty situation or era, and we always have this kind of antiquities collection we have to deal with, both literally and, and you know, they're kind of walking around the building. And, <laughs> and, I, and I mean that with, like, great respect, but also oh, insofar as I think what it does, and maybe I shouldn't be so critical of my own institution, but... I'm an old hat at it, so I think I'm going to do it, which is that I think oftentimes we feel the conversation is entirely internal, and yeah. I think that's one of the strange things about IIT. I mean, in, in graduate school, I was put in this architectural pedagogical milieu where it didn't matter that I was a student at the Bartlett. I also studied with and went to lectures with students at the AA and Goldsmiths and all these other institutions. Mm. You were just a student of architecture. Yeah, You just happened to have a studio in a certain building and a certain tutor. Um, but the idea that it's this kind of insular place where I often believe, I think most, many IIT faculty don't go to UIC very often at all, whether for a show or for a review and things like yeah. that. So I think it, it's made it so that the conversation tends to be quite internal. You know, mm. what is our legacy? What is our current history? What's our future history as it might be? Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's actually really an interesting conversation, but I think, uh, maybe to Ellen's point that, you know, being part of a larger discipline uh, is critical. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpen Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay, produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski. Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Yeah.